0: Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you, dear, like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Mm. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to episode 28 of Criminal Broads the true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. Today, we're delving into my favorite sort of case, which is a case where the players are famous, and yet the legend tends to be a little bit inaccurate. Ooh, I love this kind of thing. Um, to help me tell you this wild story, I am bringing on an expert. So you are going to hear from... Hi, I, my name is Emily
1: LeBeau-Lukhesey. PhD, and I am the author of a book called Ugly Prey An Innocent Woman and the Death Sentence that Scandalized Jazz Aid Chicago. I'm also the author of a second book called This Is Really War The Incredible True Story of a Navy Nurse POW in the Occupied Philippines.
0: I met Emily at a conference in Chicago called Murder and Mayhem we were on the same panel talking about true crime. We hit it off right away. She is awesome. We have a similar sense of humor as you will probably tell from this episode. And uh, so after you listen to this episode, please check out her books. I'm gonna link to them in the show notes on my website. You know where this information is. If you are currently consuming this podcast, I'm going to guess that you are a fan of true crime podcasts in general. If so, I wanted to recommend Stitcher Premium for you. It is full of fantastic podcasts and a lot of new, fabulous, and or ad-free true crime content. If you're looking for a new true crime podcast to check out, then you should look at True Crime Garage Off the Record, which is the latest project from the True Crime Garage hosts, Nick and the captain. Every week they're going to revisit some of the most haunting cases they've covered to date and discuss new theories, deep dives, and updates on your favorite past episodes of True Crime Garage. Stitcher Premium is also full of ad-free episodes of your favorite podcasts, so if you're a My Favorite Murder fan but you're kind of sick of the ads, consider signing up for Stitcher Premium. So, um, you want to try out a month of Stitcher Premium for free? I've got a code for you. Go to StitcherPremium.com, that's Stitcher, like S-T-I-T-C-H-E-R, Premium.com, and just plug in the promo code BROADS. That's stitcherpremium.com, promo code BROADS for all your podcasting needs. All right, without further ado, we are going to one of my favorite decades. You've probably, you could probably guess. I feel like I'm always ending up in this decade. Oh, how convenient for me. Uh, the 1920s. We are going straight to Jazz Age Chicago where Al Capone is terrorizing the streets. Things are so violent that journalists, newspaper guys are actually known to shoot at each other on buses because they're so mad that they work for rival newspapers. Women are getting the vote. Prohibition is happening. If you wanna get into the coolest gin joint in town, you gotta knock or something like that. I don't know if that's the correct knock. Would that get me in? I don't know. And Chicago as a city is dealing with a very awkward trend. Oh, There's no easy way to say this. How do I put this politely? Uh, women are starting to kill people. Let's get started. Okay. On March 12, 1924, a grieving wife named Frieda Law sat in a Chicago police station and watched police bring in the homewrecker who had just killed her husband. This woman, this awful, awful woman, had the audacity to be dressed to the nines in a fur-trimmed black coat and a hat that matched it perfectly. Frieda didn't know it yet, but this woman, Belva Gartner, would become known For her hats. On her hands, seven diamond rings. On her mouth, a smile. And to add insult to injury, this woman was 38 years old, over a decade older than Frida. This was the woman her husband had decided to sleep with? This aging, ostentatious showgirl turned socialite who had the audacity to sit two chairs down from her and laugh and laugh and laugh? Belva was a
1: former um, showgirl. Her her name originally was Belva Boozinger from Downstate Illinois, and her father had died young. Her mom was poverty stricken and relinquished her children to the state, um, and so she was actually mostly raised in an orphanage for children of, of Civil War veterans. And then when she moved to Chicago, she became Belle Brown. And um, she, uh, you know, was a showgirl, and that's how she met her husband. So she was, you know, late 30s when this all happened in 1924. And at the time she was divorced, uh, she was really at this point just a socialite. Um, she married a wealthy man who was older than her, and um, he really loved her um, to the point that he, he still wanted to be married to her. Even though she was untrue, she was violent, um, and as we'll get to the story, she's just a mean person, um, extremely self-absorbed. And so he um, still funded her. I mean, and that obviously was really the 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 you know divorce law back there then. But um, he had um, you know paid for her apartment. He still had this painting up of her. That hung in his dining room that he looked at every night. So there was, yeah, it, it's so pathetic. And there was still a relationship there. She still called him daily, but she didn't want him anymore.
0: Now that her showgirl past was long behind her and her marriage was conveniently over, conveniently, since her ex husband was still funding her lifestyle, including all those hats. Belva had the time to find herself a lover. So she peered around Chicago until her eyes alighted on a younger man who caught her fancy. The two of them started seeing each other. They'd drink and dance and drink some more and dance again and have another drink. They had a lot of fun. Sometimes they had too much fun. Walter Law is... He's in his 20s. He's about,
1: you know, 10 years younger than her. And he's married. And he's married to a woman named Frida. And he has a young son. And he works as an automobile salesman. Um, and he, one night, you know, calls his wife on the phone and says, do you want, uh, you know, you want to go out tonight, uh, go see a show? She says no. Uh, she had some sewing to do. And so he says, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to work, which is really questionable because Audible meal showrooms aren't a 24-hour business, right? So instead, you know, he goes for lady number two, and that is Belva. And so she, um, they go out that night, and um, they get drunk. And they end up um, in Belva's car, and she shoots him.
0: All we really know about those last few moments in the car between Belva and Walter was that they'd been drinking a lot of gin. Somebody must have said something. The other person reacted angrily. Things exploded into an argument, and then a shot. Or, maybe, they were just playing around, being silly, waving a gun around in that fun, flirtatious manner that people did in the 1920s after guzzling down a bunch of illegal hooch. We don't know. What we know for certain is that the gun went off and only one person stepped out of that car alive. And not just shoots
1: him, but shoots him, you know, point-blank range, and then goes upstairs to her apartment and when the police knock on the door later, she's extremely irritated that they're bothering her with this nonsense. And it, they, she, they, they, they seem to, she seems to act like, you know, clean this up for me. You know, like, why are you bothering me? And so she um, and denies it immediately. Um, they take her to the, the, the police station. It's like 2 a.m. in the morning. Um, And the way it worked back in Chicago at the time was there would be a coroner's jury. We don't have the system anymore because we switched to a medical examiner, but at the time we had a coroner. And so there was a jury who would decide whether a crime took place. And this was an important step in the process, uh, particularly for women, because very often if there was uh, female on male violence, the coroner's jury would dismiss it as self-defense, because there weren't laws that were strong enough to protect women against domestic violence, nor were they regularly enforced. So very often, if it was a boyfriend or an ex or a spouse and it was female on male violence, um, very often the coroner's jury would dismiss it um, because it was an assumed self-defense that she she uh, got violent. Um, So that's the first, at the time it was the first stage. you got the coroner's jury, then you go to a grand jury before you get the indictment. So what's interesting about the coroner's jury in Chicago, at the time, they would just happen in the weirdest places, right? So sometimes it would happen in a police station. Sometimes it would happen, um, let's say, at at, uh, a funeral home. The morgue, you know, so you're on this jury. I mean, imagine this. You're, like, you're on this jury and it's like 2 a.m. And they're like, let's go. So they go to the funeral, or this one, it's in a police station. It's really cramped. They have kind of this, this little courtroom. And what's awkward about it is they put Belva in a seat next to the victim's father. And on the other side of the father is the widow, Frida. And so this is, I mean, really terrible, right? So the father's name is Harry, and Harry is comforting Frida because uh, you know, Belva's being terrible. She's using the time before the the, the coroner's hearing starts. To just really make Frida feel bad. She's saying things like, uh, you know, Walter never really did get along with his wife. He often told me that if it weren't for his little boy, he'd never live with her. So it's really terrible. And then she says that she just, you know, this is complete nonsense. That you're accusing me of murdering Walter. She says, me? Threaten him with a knife? That's crazy. He was always a courteous gentleman
0: to me. Why should I ever be angry with him? From the beginning, Belva's alibi, if you can call it that, was that she simply didn't remember what happened. Never mind that here she was in jail, perfectly coherent, only a few hours after supposedly being so blackout drunk that she could fire a gun and not remember it. Her story was that she didn't know what had happened. She had no idea how Walter ended up dead, and she was sticking to it. At the police station, she took time to really rub salt in Frida's wounds by declaring that Walter had wanted to leave Frida for her and declaring that she herself didn't care one bit whether Walter married her or not. He was her arm candy, her boy toy. She didn't give a damn if he truly loved her. In the end, he was perfectly disposable to her. Initially, the coroner's jury, they
1: do not, they, 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 do not like her, and they they uh, remand her to the grand jury, and she's really offended by this, and she's complaining to reporters. So early on, before her husband, or I'm sorry, her ex-husband, gets an attorney for her, she's just complaining to the reporters and self-incriminating herself. So she's she's actually blames the coroner's jury for being so nasty, when she says. To a reporter, she says, that was bomb. They were narrow-minded old birds. Bet they never heard a jazz band in their lives. It gets even better. She says, now if I'm tried, I want worldly men. Broad-minded men. Men who know what it is to get out a bit. Why? No one like that would convict me. You know, She really, from the beginning, thought this was going to be a great dinner party story. You know, remember the time I went to jail for murdering a man? (laughs) They made me wear a striped uniform.
0: These quotes were certainly amusing, but they didn't make Belva look all that innocent in the press. Within a day or two, her ex-husband William, the man with the huge portrait of her hanging in his home, had procured an extremely expensive attorney for her, and the newly created Save Belva team ordered Belva to stop talking to the press and to start reforming her image. So she went from making jokes about being hung to leading a woman's Bible study and singing demurely in the choir. Still. If you kept a sharp eye on even this reformed Belva, it was pretty clear that she wasn't terribly worried about the terrible things she'd done. On the day that Walter Law was being buried, Belva Gartner was happily playing cards. ¶¶ Believe it or not, Belva wasn't some sort of wild anomaly in 1920s Chicago. In fact, the city was experiencing a disconcerting trend in those days. More and more women seemed to be totally okay with murdering people. Amid all the bootlegging, the hooch swelling, the alcaponing, the Charlestoning, and all those short skirts, women seemed to be getting the idea into their pretty little heads that If they didn't like a man, they could get rid of him with a bullet or two. Over four quick decades, murders committed by women jumped 400%. In other words, Belva certainly wasn't the only murderess giving interviews from jail. But there were rules for being a murderess, and these rules were ironclad, if technically unofficial. If you were going to be a murderess, it was very important that you be a pretty one unless you wanted life in prison. The all-male juries were so openly biased towards hot female murderers that it became something of an open secret in the city. Journalists joked about it, people from other cities wrote scathing letters to Chicago opinion columns about it, and prosecutors raged about it on the courtroom floor. No matter how damning the evidence... A silken ankle and a beauty mark above a trembling lip seemed to carry just as much weight in the jury's mind. After one especially ridiculous trial where two gorgeous blonde sisters were acquitted of murder, the irritated prosecutor remarked that blonde curls or dark eyes seem to have a faculty of making juries forget the most clinching evidence. Nowhere was this bias more evident than in cases where the murderess was older, or less beautiful, or an immigrant, or all of the above. In 1922, the serial killer Tilly Klimek was arrested for poisoning her latest husband, and the press gave her none of the admiring treatment that it gave younger, hotter killers. As journalists would never let you forget, Tilly was Polish, her English was broken, her hair was thin. She was 45, and her figure was nothing to write home about. Granted, Tilly was not a good person. She was a serial killer. But given the attention that her less-than-impressive looks got in the press, you would think that being unpretty was her real crime. An even more glaring example of this bias was seen in the trial of Sibella Niddy, an innocent woman accused of killing her husband. Sabella was an impoverished Italian immigrant who didn't speak English, worked on a farm, and simply didn't have the money or the time for fashionable bob haircuts and pale pink manicures. The press and the prosecution were merciless when it came to analyzing Sabella's looks, and her image in the press as dirty and feral—one journalist called her a dumb, crouching, animal-like Italian peasant— was a large part of what initially got her the death penalty before a crack team of Italian-American lawyers gave her a makeover and got her charges dropped. Into this world of obvious, cruel bias, Belva's confidence that she would get off wasn't entirely unearned. Sure, she wasn't the youngest or the hottest woman in the cell block, but she had money, style, and a perfect grasp of the English language. She knew how to play the game, which was less, think of a great legal argument to prove your innocence, and more, look like a sweet little lady who could have never done such a thing, or if she did do such a thing, it was certainly in self-defense. Journalists were constantly reporting on Belva's hats, (laughs) turning her into something of a style icon. Sure, reporters expressed moral outrage about her behavior in the press, but the outrage never turned to her looks, the way it did with Tilly and Sabella. Now, speaking of good looks. About a month after Belva was arrested, a new murderess showed up in jail, and this one would really show the biases of the jury in all their glory. This murderess was an undeniable stunner. And she had a soft little Southern accent to boot, turning her into the perfect "I couldn't have done it" package. Her name was Beulah Anon, and she was in jail because she had shot a man in the chest. This is what we know: she was she was twenty five at the
1: time, really pretty, right? So dark red hair, bright blue eyes, and she comes from Kentucky, and she's actually she'd been married before and so what's interesting is she was she was married to a man named perry stevens and they had a child together they had a son and so what is interesting is uh you know beulah when she's married she's unfaithful this is standard operating procedure for beulah and so she was married to Perry. They had a child. And he he might have suspected that she was stepping out on him, but it became confirmed when she was badly injured in a car accident. And she'd been in the car of another man. They're speeding along the highway and they crash into a telephone pole. Right? So that's super awkward right? <laughs> to explain. Uh so your wife was in a car accident. And she's cruising with another man while you were at work. So she headed to Louisville and then on to Chicago. And she married another Kentuckian. And his name was Albert Anand. He was a mechanic. And he was really excited to be married to such a beautiful woman. And so he was, um, you know, he, he, was, he was stout. He was about an inch taller than her. Um, and he, he wanted to take care of her.
0: Albert gave Beulah a very nice life. The two of them had their own apartment, in sharp contrast to a lot of their peers who lived in boarding houses, and they had furniture which was almost completely paid off, which was rare in a time when people would buy furniture on installments and make regular payments to the furniture store. Beulah was really lucky. But she didn't see it that way. There are a lot
1: of women in Chicago in 1924 who would have wanted to be in Beulah's situation, right? Because he got a man who will work all hours if he has to. You know, he had for her um, the, the, the the phonograph, um, whatever they could do in, 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 you know, to have the best in that time, Al was providing. But it's never enough for Beulah, right? So she's got a boyfriend. So his name is Harry. They're, they're having an affair. And it's in April 5th of um nineteen twenty four. That's like either a Tuesday or Wednesday. And so it's middle of the week. Al's at work. She works on occasion at a dry cleaner. Um, not in the back, like doing hard work, I should say. No, she she just does little office things. It keeps her busy. Um, but she's off that day, and so she has Harry come over and they drink a gallon of wine in the afternoon. And so they do what two people who drank a gallon of wine in the middle of the afternoon do, and that is they get into a rip boring, nonsensical fight. And they were offending each other, then the name calling comes up, and then is she um she shoots him. You know, they kinda it's it's one of those things where they're arguing back and forth, moving around, um, and she she blasts him and she's just way too drunk to really know what she did um and so she plays a record it's a foxtrot called the hula and she listens to it on repeat
0: they call her Hulalu, the kind of gal who never could be true she did her dancing in the evening breeze Neath the tree. Oh, how she used to shake her seaweed knees! I never knew a man who wouldn't shoot a damn a groove and sail across the briny blue too. To the lady known as Hula After two hours of sitting there in her apartment, drunk out of her mind, with her lover bleeding to death in front of her, listening to this song play over and over and over, Beulah started making phone calls. First, she called the laundromat where both she and Harry worked, and she asked if Harry was there. Then, she called her husband at work, and she said she'd shot someone, because... He had tried to rape her her husband raced home as fast as he could and found the grisly scene there was his wife smelling of wine spattered in blood wearing only a camisole with two wine glasses sitting on the table and there was harry's body slumped against the wall albert called the police and when the police arrived Beulah instantly asked the accompanying assistant state's attorney if he couldn't just frame it to make it look like an accident The man said no. The police gave her a jacket to cover up a bit and brought her to the police station, where a photographer snapped a photo of her looking softly off into the distance with a string of pearls around her neck and the lace of her camisole peeking out from the jacket, looking like someone who wouldn't hurt a fly, like someone who, in fact, needed protection from the big, bad men of the world. That photo was perfect pr for beulah almost instantly her image was set in stone she was a beautiful damsel in distress end of story even when the evidence contradicted her perfect image journalists tended to ignore it she never got dressed for the day
1: she's only wearing a camisole and i make a point of this because the reporters were so horrendous to sabella Nitti, a recent immigrant from bari doesn't speak English, farm woman, they're calling her a dirty, crouching animal, monkey. But Beulah and Nan did not get dressed for the day. She drank a gallon of wine. You know she had some rank B.O. And no, no one ever brought that
0: up. Yes, the photo was good PR, but it wasn't an automatic get out of jail free card, and Beulah didn't want to be in jail anymore. So, in order to speed things up, she took an ambitious next step. Beulah
1: is looking to distinguish herself, and she fakes a pregnancy. That pregnancy did everything she needed it to do because she had um, her attorney announced it on May 8th, and she got an expedited trial to make a comparison at this point uh nitty had been in cook county jail for more than a year and it's uh buell is like going on like day 35 and so they make the announcement on may 8th and they ask for the trial to begin in two weeks and so you know she they set her up for the trial um they have her not wear a hat because um it you know makes her look young and vulnerable and uh, you know she's really doing her Kentucky accent, and then she really just comes across as a good wife. Harry from work came over, and and I just told him to leave. I told him my husband might come home, and 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 then she said, uh, you know, I told him of my delicate condition, and then they get into a fight. Because, you know, he was trying, he was coming on to her and she was telling him, no, 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 I, I'm with child. And it, it ends up, you know, he tries to
0: force himself on Beulah and she shoots him. Just imagine the courtroom scene. Here's this beautiful young pregnant woman swearing that she just wanted to be faithful and true to her husband when this horrible man burst in and tried to force himself on her. And she's saying all this in a southern accent. I mean, after hearing and seeing all of this, the jury was a done deal. Anyone who had been following the news in Chicago over the past couple of years could have anticipated the outcome of Beulah's trial in their sleep. You know, at
1: this point, the jury members, they're like nodding in agreement, right? She was the victim. And then I love it. The reporters had made note. Some of the jurymen were like angrily chewing their gum because they were so mad at the dead man who had assaulted this poor little girl. And they really they really play to the, you know, gentlemen and the jury, you hate this type of guy. You hate this type of guy for what he does to women. So um she, you know, she was acquitted. It was only two hours, so that they, they, they decided it was a one day trial. She was gone. I mean, by that evening, she was back in her apartment where she had shot Harry. But then here's where it gets good. Okay, ready? So on Monday, she's out on Friday. On Monday, she goes and signs paperwork to begin divorce proceedings against Dale. And she says, he was too slow. Get this, he didn't know how to dance. She said, I want lights, music, and good times, and I'm going to have them.
0: Next, it was time for Belva's trial. Despite her ridiculous alibi, she didn't end up needing anything like a fictitious pregnancy to get off. By the time her trial was ready to start, everyone was distracted by a crime far more horrible than whatever Belva had or had not done. Sure, hot, drunk ladykillers made good front-page fodder, but suddenly, an even more shocking crime was plastered all over the headlines.
1: She claims she doesn't remember a thing, it wasn't me.
0: Um, And
1: quite frankly, I think they give up on her because the day of her trial, they are already busy with um, what became known as the trial of the century. And that was um, two um, University of Chicago graduate students named Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, killed a 14-year-old boy
0: for the thrill of it. At her jury selection, Belva looked sharp. She wore fashionable gray tights, high heels, a blue twill suit, and an incredible hat. Her approach was to be seen and seen only. She wasn't going to take the witness stand. After all, she couldn't remember a thing. She was just to sit there, looking stylish, and let the biases of the jury do their work. As the jurors, one building over, heard horrific testimony about the time Leopold and Loeb had castrated a cab driver, Belva's jury was selected, and their eyes were on her. The trial itself took one day. There were hardly any witnesses. She wore brown, to match her eyes, with a luxurious swath of mink around her neck, and when the jury decided that she was not guilty, she burst into laughter. Oh, I'm so happy, so happy, she said, and I want to hurry out now and get some air. Walter Law's wife, Frida, watched Belva rejoice, and then fell into the arms of her own sister, sobbing. There's no justice in Illinois, she said. No justice. Walter paid. Why shouldn't she? Two years later, one of the reporters who'd covered both cases, a judgmental broad named Maureen Dallas Watkins, immortalized Belva and Beulah in a play she wrote called Chicago. The play was later turned into a musical and then a movie. Perhaps you've heard of it? As fun as the movie is, though, it's contributed to quite a few misconceptions when it comes to Belva and Beulah, known in the movie as Velma Kelly and Roxy Hart. Sure, it's just a movie, but some of those misconceptions have stuck around to this day and appear on shows and podcasts about Belva and Beulah that are purportedly using historical facts. So in
1: real life, Belva and Beulah weren't really competing with each other. You know, Beulah was aware that there had been a track record of beautiful women being acquitted and she was aware that her court timing was coming up with a set of other women. Uh, But it wasn't, it wasn't this nonsense of they wanted to be stars or celebrities. Um, They didn't have the same attorney who was dividing his time between them. You know, in the movie, it's like, if you take a little bit from Belva, you automatically give it to Beulah that didn't exist at all. And in fact, I think, um, in real why, um, Belva was of the two of them, she was going to fare far better. Um, her husband had purchased the best attorneys. And, um, so all she had to do was just write out her time. So she was very quiet, not talking to the press, Um, really just focusing on herself at the time. So I I think, you know, history gets this wrong. Also in the movie Chicago, um, Sabella Nitti is played by the Hungarian ballerina Hanyuk. And in the movie, spoiler alert, turn down your radio for a second if you don't want to hear it. Um, But Hanyuk dies in the movie. And that does not happen in real life. In real life, Sabella Nitti remarries, and retires to California.
0: As the years went by, Belva and Beulah were transformed into these glamorous murderesses who got off scot-free and, huh, wasn't it all sort of delightful? Few people remembered their story's real endings. Beulah married an abusive man and died young of tuberculosis. Belva remarried patient old William Gartner and abused him. Immigrant women like Tilly Klimek and Sabella Nitty were largely forgotten. Also forgotten? What the world was really like back then. It wasn't all jazz and booze and drunken lovers' quarrels. It wasn't all furs and hats and lacy camisoles. The times were changing and anxiety-ridden. Women were gaining more and more freedom. Society's relationship to alcohol was hideously confused. People were suspicious of immigrants, the social order was shifting fast, and no one really knew how to handle it. There was a lot of
1: anxiety. I don't think people remember. You know, Chicago, the film, you know, it, history looks back and sees, um, you know, the flappers and the drinking, uh, the speakeasies, and it just seems like a, you know, a fun time. But, you know, before the crash of the Great Depression, but they had their own anxieties as well. They had their own anxieties regarding what was really a changing culture, right? So you have. Um, prohibition, which was really intended to stop um, the alcohol use that had been brought in by, by specific cultures, right? And the, the alcohol and drug use brought in by, by um, ethnic whites and people of color, right? So you have prohibition is a huge factor in that. You have women that just gotten in the vote. So that's a shifting change um, in the social order. And then the other change, in the social order that was a major shift was uh, introduction of credit, consumer credit in the mass. And so remember I I brought up those furniture stores. So now all of a sudden you have more opportunities for installment credit that's going out to the middle class. And so we have this real blending of the social order. And that makes people anxious. Um, It's, you know, For a lot of people, it's a good thing, right? You know, that um, the social order that's been rigid is being redefined. um, That's going to open up opportunity uh, for some people. But for the people who feel threatened by it, it's a time of anxiety. And so what you see these prosecutors doing is appealing to these all-male, all-white, all all of a specific type of of ethnicity. Um, right? So you, you, nobody's name on these juries ends in a vowel, you know? Uh let's just say that, right? So they're they're appealing to whatever anxieties these men might have about the social order. But you know, it's not fun, right? And so that's why it's so much more fun to look at what Maureen Dallas Watkins was attacking, which was the um you know, the morality, the middle-class morality. And so that's how the movie Chicago remembers it, is uh, not thinking about the tenements in Chicago at the time, not thinking about the poverty um, or what made people want so badly to change the social order. She's looking at the people who had, you know, really been benefiting from the social order, who were,
0: you know, defecting from it through jazz and booze. Jazz and booze, booze and jazz. That's how these women would always be remembered, despite the bodies they left behind, bleeding out. Their juries were desperate to think that women like them simply couldn't be violent or callous enough to take a life like they were snuffing out a candle. Pretty American girls didn't kill. (laughs) They couldn't. The thought was too horrible to bear And so Belva and Beulah's juries simply didn't bear it. Instead, they pushed thoughts of violent women under the rug and let the ladies go. Jazz. Oh, sorry I didn't see you there. Um, that's the end, folks. I hope you enjoyed this story of jazz age insanity and inanity. I love the I love this time period because all these famous crimes are sort of happening on top of each other. As I've said already twice. Al Capone's also going on during all of this. And um I don't know. It's it, You can really see if you just zoom into Chicago in these couple of years, you can see so many of the era's issues on display, and you can also see how these crimes played into each other, like, um, uh, well, like Emily was mentioning about Leo- the Leopold and Loeb trial, literally distracted from Belva's trial. Like that's not that's not speculation from nearly a hundred years later. That's that's how it was, or um, you know, I write more about Tilly Klimek in my book, Lady Killers, actually. I have a whole chapter on her. But her by the time she came along, people were already aware of the bias towards pretty killers, even though Belva and Beulah had not killed anyone yet. And so by the time Tilly came along, when people were writing about her in the press, they were also sort of doing this meta commentary on how we treat pretty killers. It's just a very interesting time period um, and worth looking into. So I hope you like this This story, I would encourage you to go out and get Emily's books. Um, Let me pull up the titles again. Her first book, which is on Sabella Nitty, and that is a heartbreaking and fascinating story. Sabella was innocent but got the death penalty, and the abuse she endured in the press is just. I'm gonna make your blood boil. That book is called *Ugly Prey*, an innocent woman, an innocent woman, and the death sentence that scandalized Jazz Age Chicago. And then she has a new book that just came out, which is another incredible story from women's women's history. I why I don't know why I'm getting my plurals and my singulars messed up today. From women's history, uh, this book is called This Is Really War, the incredible true story of a Navy nurse POW in the occupied Philippines. So you can get those at your local bookstore, on Amazon, um, wherever you get your books. Follow Emily on Instagram. Uh, check out her website. I will link to her contact information in the show notes. Finally, um, if you're liking the podcast, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and supporting the pod on Patreon, patreon.com slash criminalbroadz. You'll find that there are different amounts you can give. And this episode's patron is the brilliant and beautiful Kelsey Bourgeois. Kelsey, thank you. You'll be getting a postcard in the mail, but until then, please accept this bouquet of podcast flowers that I'm handing you through the microphone. Alright everyone thank you as always for listening and for your enthusiasm about the stories of women's history I it's fun to chat with you all and see that you're as passionate about this topic as I am. Alright until I talk to you next time, have a wonderful two weeks goodbye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong loving you dear like I do If it's a crime Then I'm guilty Guilty of loving you
1: I never knew
0: A man who wouldn't shoot A Dan McGrew And sail across The briny blue too The lady knows